are continuing on in our series in Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13 this morning. But before we go there, I have a, a fun fact about Rox and me that I don't think many of you probably know. But while we were dating, we had about seven whole weeks of actual physical interaction before uh, I proposed. So in our dating relationship, we had seen each other for seven weeks before I proposed. And you may think, that is crazy. And yes, indeed it is. It was crazy. So just seven weeks. Now, we had dated longer. We dated for, for eight months, but it was almost entirely long distance. Only seven weeks were actually in person. Not only was it long distance, I was on the other side of the world with a 12-hour time difference. So that was uh, a, a lot of just craziness. But then things didn't really change much when we got engaged. She came over uh, after we had dated for eight months. I proposed. She said yes. And then she went back home. So then we had six more months of being apart. And by the time we got married, I think the total amount of time we had physically spent together was, I think, 10 weeks. Um, it took us over a year of being married to have been around each other longer than we had physically been apart. So that was pretty wild. And uh, if anybody asked me, would you want to go back to engagement? No, absolutely not. Even if we had been in person, I wouldn't want to go back to engagement. Because engagement is not better than marriage. Engagement is pointing to marriage and saying, hey, there's something better on the horizon, but it's not better. Ask any engaged couple, and they're like, yeah, we're excited, but right now it's pretty terrible. I mean, ask Nick and Becca, and it's like, I'm pretty sure you'd rather be married than just in this continual engagement time. That is no fun. Yeah, we, if, if anybody said, I wanted to go back to engagement, I'd be like, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what is absolutely wrong with you? Not only that, but engagement doesn't fundamentally alter who you are. You know, you're still a single person. Your, your finances, your, your physicality together, your emotions, they're still kind of all separate. But once you get married, all of those things come together because engagement is pointing to something greater than itself. And I bring all this up because Jesus, when he came, brought something like marriage, a covenant, an agreement, that was better than the preparatory period that came before. Jesus brought something better. You see, God had made an old covenant with his people long ago that governed how he and his people related to one another. And it was good, but something better was coming. And now something better has come and is here. And that something better is, satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. It speaks to the problems and wounds and needs that we have. It speaks to our relationship with the Lord. But even though that's true, we often find ourselves looking back to the way things were or the way things functioned between God and his people long ago. And we look at that and we try to go back to that. And it's as foolish as trying to go back to engagement. So that's what we're looking at today. We're going to look at something better. That's the title of today's sermon, Something Better. And we're looking at this new covenant that Jesus says is better. We've been considering Jesus through the book of Hebrews. And so today we're going to consider his covenant because it is better. Let me pray and we will dive in. Father, we thank you once again, for the gift it is to gather together and the gift of your word, that we can see your heart and hear your voice 
Father, I pray that you would use me, give us open ears and soft hearts. May what we see here today change us and help us to know you better. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today's passage is somewhat short, so I'm actually going to read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of make some observations about it. Uh, so a little different than what we normally do and what I would even normally do, but we're going to read the whole thing right up, the fr- uh, right up top. So here we go, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, so let's rewind a bit. We're going to go back to verses 6 and 7 and talk about, real quick, the need for a new covenant. So a covenant, in case you're not familiar, was an agreement between two parties. And in the ancient world, historically, you'd have kind of a powerful party, a king or an emperor or something like that, who would make an agreement, a covenant, with a lesser party. And the word for making a covenant was actually cut a covenant. So you would uh, usually kill an animal and you'd, put, you'd slice it in half and put its two parts kind of across from one another. And the, the parties that were entering into this agreement would walk through the space between the two uh, the two halves of the carcass. It was pretty bloody and gross. But the idea was, was that if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, you can do to me like what we have done to these animals. So they would cut a covenant. And usually the terms were that uh, the, the people the, uh, would, would serve and uh, kind of do whatever the king said, and the king would offer protection. It was between a, a greater party and a lesser party. And so God made a covenant with his people. He rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and they ma- he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments, that's where we get the rest of the law. And the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20, but we kind of get an introduction to the covenant that's about to happen in Exodus 19. And I want to read that to you in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So these are basically the terms of the covenant. You will be my people, and here are the rules, here are the stipulations that you need to follow. And these were all about how they would represent God to the rest of the world, how they would have relationship with God, all the things that they needed to do, and God was going to give them a land, he was going to protect them, they would be his people, he would be their God, and it was to be a beautiful relationship between the two. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, they fail again and again and again. They wander away from the Lord. They don't follow his commands. They don't keep his covenants to the point where God exiles them from the land. The land vomits them out, it says in some places. And they are removed from his gracious presence. When you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, they're continually calling people back to the covenant. They're saying, look, this covenant was made. They're usually never saying anything new. They're always just saying, well, here's the covenant. Come back, come back, come back to the Lord. He loves you. And in Jeremiah, which if you read Jeremiah, it's mostly kind of sad and them failing and them being rebuked and exiled. But in Jeremiah, in the middle, around chapter 31 and kind of before and after in the kind of a a little small section, Jeremiah begins to speak of hope. God speaks through Jeremiah of a time that's coming when there will be a great, beautiful restoration. And the prophets as a whole often speak about this time of beautiful restoration. But specifically in Jeremiah 31, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, you get a promise of a new covenant that's coming. And that is what the author of Hebrews is quoting here. And the author of Hebrews is basically saying, look, If the old covenant was all that there was supposed to be, then why did Jeremiah say that a new covenant that was better was coming? Because remember, the author of Hebrews is trying to argue them away from going back to the old ways. And so here we have him saying, look, even the old covenant itself says there's something better coming. Just like engagement says something better is coming. And so that's what this new covenant is all about. This new covenant was brought on by Jesus. Very clearly throughout the New Testament, Jesus' work is, is, is referenced as bringing in the new covenant. Matthew says this in chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. This is at the Last Supper, uh, before the crucifixion. Uh, uh, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. This is what happens. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Now get this, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus offers his own body to make the covenant. He sacrifices his body, saying, If you fail to be perfect, to live up to God's standards, I'll die for it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross, dying for our failure to be right and perfect before the Lord. Now, for the rest of our time today, I want to look through the rest of our verses and see why the new covenant indeed is better. It's one thing to say, you know, yeah, there was an old covenant and there's a new covenant, it's better. But why is it better? Why is the old covenant not what we need? So we're going to have four main reasons why the New Covenant is better, according to the author of Hebrews and ultimately Jeremiah, because uh, that's really the entirety of our text today. 
It's going to be four things. We're going to spend most of our time on the first. So if we get to the end of the first and you're like, oh my goodness, that was exhausting. That was long. Don't worry. That was the longest one. So just to give you a heads up, give you hope as we go along, the first one will be the longest. Let's look at why the new covenant is better. Number one, the new covenant brings a change of heart. The new covenant brings a change of heart. You see, the old covenant could not change heart. When you go to verse 8, thanks Coda, we see in verse 8 and 9 what happens in their covenant. They did not continue. They couldn't keep the covenant. They kept wandering away. Their hearts did not yearn and long for the Lord. Instead, they were going whichever way they wanted. The biggest problem that we have as humans is not the external things that happen to us, but it's the internal sinfulness of our own hearts as we reject the Lord. Yes, there is suffering and depravity all around us, but generally that's caused by depraved people coming together and making depraved systems, depraved communities. And so we end up suffering and living in a world that's broken because we constantly reject the Lord. And the Old Covenant shows that just a a list of rules, a list of expectations isn't enough for us to experience the peace and harmony with one another and with the Lord. It's because the law reveals sin, but it doesn't change the heart. The law reveals sin, but it doesn't change the heart. Their hearts weren't bound to the Lord, just their flesh was. If we look in the Old Covenant, they had circumcision. They had to circumcise all of their male children, and that demonstrated that they were part of the community of God. But that didn't speak to their heart. It didn't keep them from wandering away. And as a result, God shows no concern for them. Their relationship with him is broken. And instead, they have to look to a new covenant. Uh, Some of you guys know my shoulder's been bothering me since June. And there's been a lot that I haven't been able to do. Kind of reaching above my head is hard and and it hurts. And um, I've been on anti-inflammatory and uh, nothing really seems to fix it. I thought it was getting better and then I ran out of anti-inflammatory and it still hurts. And it, it was supposed to have been healed by now, according to sports medicine doctors. It's gotten to the point where they've scheduled an MRI for me on Tuesday. So I'm going to go in. I've never had an MRI before. I have no idea what to expect. But I do know this. The MRI is not going to fix my problem. If I went into my MRI with the expectation that, okay, they're going to look at this and I'll be healed. You'd look at me and you'd be like, Mark, bro, that's not not magic. It's not like, you know... They just kind of look at it and they do some voodoo something and, and you're all better. That's, that's not what the MRI is going to do. The MRI is going to show, Lord willing, what's wrong with your shoulder. The MRI is a diagnostic tool, not a scalpel, not a transplant. The old covenant is like an MRI. It's showing them and us our tendency to wander away from the Lord. But here's the problem that we have today. We have a tendency to keep going to the diagnostic tool 
in order to get our hearts healed. We have a tendency to go to the diagnostic tool in order to get our hearts healed. We keep looking at the commands of God and we think, if I do that, then things will be better. Then everything will be right in my life or my relationship with God will be right. Now, the law is good. That's clear throughout scripture. The law is good, but the law does not heal me. The law does not fix me. I need a heart transplant. I need something entirely different to come to me and change me. But we keep going to that diagnostic tool thinking, oh, just this time, just this time, it'll be all right. But now we see, starting in verse 10, he gives us the positives of what happens. So Cody, you can go to verse 10. This new covenant will have the laws put into their minds and written on their hearts. It speaks to our deepest needs. You see, laws written on stone are external commands. But now it's written on our hearts. So it doesn't just mean, oh, we know the law. But it's, what he's getting at is that we will follow the law. That we are actually given a new heart. We, we aren't having just this set of external stipulations that say, hey, go here, go there, do this, do that. But our inclination, our desires are all replaced with what God desires from us. This is the transplant that we need. Now, I want you to hear me or hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all of a sudden because we are under the new covenant that our hearts automatically know everything that is right and we just follow our heart. That's not what the author of Hebrews was saying. That's not what Jeremiah was saying. He's not saying follow your heart. Instead, he is saying that our hearts as new covenant people are bound to the Lord and that our deepest desires, our deepest identity is someone who belongs to the Lord and follows him and it's dependent upon him and his graciousness and not us. So not follow your heart, but instead you have a new heart that God has given you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, pick up on this theme. Ezekiel 2 was speaking of a time when God would restore his people and bring about these beautiful promises. And in chapter 36, this is what we see. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So no longer is it where we have a list of commands, but instead a heart that knows the Lord and wants to walk with him. You can think about the old covenant as like a list of instructions from your doctor on how to lower your cholesterol. While the new covenant is like a heart transplant that gives you a heart that can never have heart disease or cholesterol problems. A new heart from God himself. Now there's a second effect of the law being written on our hearts. So the first one is that we we know God, we follow him. The second one is that we actually know how to apply the law of God in particular situations. You see, with the old covenant law, you had a lot of boundaries. Like, don't murder. Say, okay, I'm I'm good if I stay within the boundary of don't murder. But what happens in the new covenant? Jesus says it's not just don't murder, but it's love your brother. And then what does loving your brother look like? Laying down your life. Sacrificing all you have for their good. So the Old Testament or Old Covenant is like a fence 
you know, we have a fence in our backyard and we'll send our kids out there and we're fine with them being out there because we know that they won't get hurt. But the new covenant is more like a parent being out there with the child, playing with them, showing them how to be a child and, and have fun and play rightly, playing with them. It's not just a fence of, oh, don't go out there and you might get hurt, but it's I'm here with you, showing you what it's like to be in the backyard and play. So much better than a fence. Better than a fence. Now, this brings us to the question of, well, was the old covenant a mistake? Did God mess up by starting here? Some people would say that. And they're absolutely wrong. (laughs) Absolutely wrong. No, the old covenant was not a mistake. This was God's plan all along. To show people their need for a new covenant to show people that they need a new heart, to show us that we need a new heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God is speaking to his people. This is at the very end of the giving of the Torah, the the law, the first five books of the Bible. And this, this is what basically it says at the end, Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So even in the beginning, when the law was given, it says there's something better coming. There is something absolutely better on the way. So the first one was the new covenant brings a change of heart. It brings a change of heart. The second way, the new covenant is better. And this is beautiful. God makes and fulfills this covenant. The new covenant is better because God makes and fulfills this covenant. See, God was not content to sit back, but he intervened. God could have been perfectly within his rights to give us a law and say, if you follow this, you will live. And then let us fail and say, sorry. But God, in his mercy, at his deepest level, at the core of his being, loves and therefore intervened, creating a new covenant, a new way for us to be with the Lord. He initiated the covenant. He provided the sacrifice. He provided the means by which we believe. Whether you believe in free will or the complete sovereignty of God, both theological camps believe that God was the one who provides the means for belief. If you are in the completely free will camp, you believe that God restores our soul to the point where we can make a free choice. Or if you're in the sovereignty camp, you believe that God restores our soul to the point where we can't say no. But either way, you're believing that God is the one who restores the soul and brings us to that point where we can say yes to Christ. He initiates, he provides. He provides the means for belief. Then he grows us. He sustains us. He keeps us. He glorifies us. All of these things are dependent upon him and not upon us. Because that is who he is. It does not depend upon you. It does not depend upon me. It does not depend upon our church attendance. It does not depend upon our Bible reading. It does not depend upon our prayer. All of those things are good and part of our lives, but they are not what make our Christian lives. They are the fruit of knowing God, the fruit of him working in our lives. Think about how crazy that is. 
just for a moment, that the God of the universe initiated with us people that didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it at all. And he said, don't worry. There's a day coming when this new covenant will arrive. How beautiful is that? So God makes and fulfills this covenant. The third way, I told you it'd be shorter. The third way is that they will all know the Lord. If you look in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will all know the Lord. And that is a consequence of the Lord writing his law on the heart of his people. You see, in the, old com- or in the Old Covenant, the community, the people of God, was comprised of both believers and non-believers. Old Testament saints and the people who did not believe. And so, that's why both Jeremiah and the author of Hebrews here were saying that they had to keep exhorting one another, know the Lord, because there were people in their midst who did not. But in the New Covenant, the community of God is defined only as those who know the Lord. There is no mix. The universal truth, or the universal church is comprised of all believers at all times and all places. And that's why we want our local churches to be comprised of believers. Now, our local churches, we don't work that out perfectly. Sometimes people profess faith and appear to be believers and then ultimately are not. But that's why we want our local churches to look that way. That's why we are Baptists in this church is because of things like this. This is one of the reasons why Baptist, uh, Baptistic thought came to being, because they thought the local church ought to reflect the universal church. That everybody within the church, everybody within the community of believers actually knows the Lord, actually loves him, actually has turned to Christ for forgiveness of sins. That's how you enter into this new covenant community. It's by believing that Jesus did indeed die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. That God's wrath stood upon us, but God in his love offered Christ as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And we turn to him in faith and believe that that sacrifice is enough. Receiving him, believing in his name, and being counted as children of God. They all know the Lord. You see, the Old Covenant formed a nation, a geopolitical reality, but that's ultimately not what we needed. We didn't need a community comprised of believers and non-believers or just a nation state that was a theocracy telling us what to do. We needed a completely new redefinition of human life, a completely new community that loved and sacrificed in incredible and amazing ways. We needed something better, something better. Because we have his law written on our hearts, we are his people. We recognize his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So the first was that it brings a change of heart. The new covenant brings a change of heart. Second, God makes and fulfills this covenant. Third, they will all know the Lord. We all know the Lord within the community of God. And fourth, it's better Because God's mercy and forgiveness of sins are here now. They're here now. Guys, we have rebelled. But God offers forgiveness. I want to revel in that. The the God of the universe, the God who cannot forget, the God who knows all things, the God who knew every single last wicked thing that you and I would ever do, 
all the times that you would be a hypocrite and say, I'm never going to do that again, and then you go and do that again. The God who knew that said, I will die for you anyways, because I love you that much. He forgives iniquity. He's merciful. He remembers them no more. When you are wronged, how do you feel? When somebody does something to you, I bet you don't feel very good. And you're kind of like, oh, I, want, I, want, I want revenge. I, just, I want them to suffer. It is hard. And God, who would have every right to say, that's it, says no. Draw near to me as I draw near to you. I offer forgiveness and mercy. This doesn't mean that the former covenant, that old covenant, wasn't gracious. I mean, God rescued the people out of Egypt before he gave them the law. It was an act of grace and mercy. And God continually went back to them, or drew them back to himself time and time again. He sent them the prophets. That in itself was an act of mercy. But they needed to obey in order to get the blessings of the covenant, the old covenant. But they disobeyed and they received the curses. In the new covenant, the Lord brings blessings before our obedience and then causes the further blessing of obedience. It's beautiful. See, the old covenant was also rooted in God's grace in the same way that engagement is rooted in the same thing as marriage, rooted in love, ideally, of course. But marriage is a much fuller picture of love than engagement ever could be. And here we have this idea that the new covenant is here. Jeremiah looked forward, and us, along with the author of Hebrews, we look back. We say, yes, the new covenant is indeed here. If you look in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new is here. The old is obsolete. It's been replaced. But we're still tempted to go back to that. Even as Gentiles, as far as I know, almost everybody in this room, if not all of us, are from uh, non-Jewish descent. Maybe there's a few of you who have Jewish descent, uh, parents or grandparents. So most of us would be counted ethnically outside the people of Israel, but we still look at the covenant and we're like, oh, I like that. I want to go back to that instead of realizing we've been grafted in. The new covenant was given to Israel and Judah, but guess what? We get to be part of Israel and Judah because we as Gentiles are grafted in. Paul talks a lot about in, that Roman, in Romans 9, 10, 11. We're not going to go there today, but we are part of this. And so we still look back though at the old covenant and the old way of doing things where it's like, just give me the rule that I have to do and maybe that'll be enough. Our heart longs to go there. Or I should say our flesh longs to go there. We've been given new hearts. It's the same way. How foolish is this? So I, I just finished up, just a couple weeks ago, my last class in my master's program. So praise the Lord as it's done. But what if I was like, you know, I remember back elementary school days. I remember pizza day in the cafeteria. And pizza always came in a square, which is weird. But came in a giant square because they baked it in a pan. If I looked at that and I was like, man, I miss those days. 
I can't wait. I'm just going to go re-enroll in elementary school so I can have pizza day in the cafeteria. It's like, what's wrong with me? No! It's better. I have my master's degree. I can go to Mother Bears with my family. We go there like every Friday night. We have pizza movie night. We go order Mother Bears. It's awesome. I don't go back. And it was on Friday, too. It was pizza day with, uh, with the elementary school, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Statesville Road Elementary. I still remember it. Man. But that's what we do. I want to give you three ways, three specific ways that we are tempted to go back to the the Old Covenant to wrap up. Three ways we're tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. One is by operating on a transactional basis with God. I think if I have my quiet time, the Lord will bless me with a good day because the Lord owes me. If I'm loving to my coworker, there won't be any conflict with that coworker or anybody else because the Lord owes me today. If I study hard for my test, I should get a good score because the Lord owes me. That's the way we want to operate in this life. Tom Schreiner says this in response to these ideas. Our hope is not rooted in our piety, but in the Lord's transforming grace, in his changing the hearts of his people by his power. Do you hear that? Our hope is not rooted in our piety, in the things that we do, but in the Lord's transforming grace in his changing the hearts of his people by his power. The new covenant tells us that mercy and forgiveness have been given to us. So if we operate on a transactional basis, we're denying the reality of God's grace. So we have a quiet time. We read the Bible. We spend time in prayer because it's good to spend time with a loving father. Say, I want to be with him, not to get something from him. I want to love my coworkers because I want them to experience God's love in the way that I've been uh, experienced God's love. Not because I want everything to go well in my life. Because you may love them and things won't go well in your life. I study hard because I take joy in being a good steward of what God has put in front of me as a student. Not because I just want to perform really well or God's going to owe me and give me the life that I want by getting a good grade on the test and getting the job that I want. So we look to his grace and mercy and be reminded that it's not up to us to make God happy, but that he's extended grace to us already. And then we respond. So it's not about trying harder, but relying harder. Not trying harder, but relying harder. So that's the first way. We're we're tempted to operate on a transactional basis. Secondly, we think hope has come in our politics, or we try to find hope in our politics or people. Like, if we just get this policy or this politician, if we just get this idea, then everything will be okay. That's not true. The new covenant brought about a new reality, saying that this geopolitical world is not all that there is, and it will someday be replaced by something better, completely replaced. It's being replaced now. We have the church now, but someday we will have glory in heaven with the Lord. But we want to put our hope in politicians and in policies. That doesn't mean that we aren't involved in the political process. We want to see good things. God's rules are good, and we want to see our culture reflect them. But we can't find our hope there. We can't think if we just do this, it'll all work out. Thirdly, ways we're tempted to go back to the old covenant is by operating as if hope has not come. Have a woe is me mentality. I can't keep God's commandments. Well, On your own, not. You can't. But guess what? 
You're not on your own. And so you can. When that temptation arises, you can say no to sin and yes to Christ because his spirit is with you. He lives in your heart. He's merciful towards you, remembers your iniquities no more. Brothers and sisters, something better has indeed arrived. It is here. By ourselves, we are tempted to wander away. But God, in his mercy, has reached out, wrapped his arms around us. We are tethered to him, not just by a cord and we kind of wander away out there, but we are in his embrace and he does not let us go. We are all his children. When we have said yes to Christ, all will know his name. All will know him from the least to the greatest. Our hearts have been changed. May we follow this gracious and redemptive God. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that this is indeed who you are. We thank you that the old covenant was not a mistake, but was meant to point us to our need for Christ. And we thank you that Christ has come, that Christ has brought that new covenant that is indeed better. We thank you that you have changed our hearts, that when we say yes to Christ, that you have sent your spirit into our hearts and that we are able to live as you desire for us to live, that we are able to please you, not out of our own strength and power, but we are able to live righteous lives that are good, that we're able to see restoration in the relationships around us. We're able to see good stewardship happen because of you. Father, I pray that we will not be tempted to boast in and of ourselves, that we're not tempted to go back to the old covenant, the old way of life, but may we rejoice that the new is here, that it is indeed better, and that you are holding on to us. Father, we praise you that you do not let go, that you are our God, and that you are here with us. I pray all this in Christ's name.